Father, thank you so much for your word, your spirit, your people, your truth. Lord, as we, as we come to written words, just, just letters on a page, just really ink printed on wood pulp, your spirit transforms those things into the words of life, the words of truth, the wisdom of the ages handed down by the faithful. Lord, help us to see with your eyes, your people, your history, your story, your word. May your glory and, and majesty be manifest in all that we share together. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to dismiss the kids to God's backyard. And while they're heading out, um, if, you, if you want to join me in turning to the book of Judges, chapter 21, We have, been, we have been exploring the big ideas of Scripture. These are the underlying values or ideas, concepts that drove the biblical authors. Uh, and and I, I remind folks of, uh, that, that, is, that that's what this is about. This is not about reading a verse and saying, well, you know, this is a verse that people were very familiar with. But rather, these are the concepts that, that bleed over from the from the original authors who first wrote it into the authors of the rest of scripture and feed kind of the 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 redeemed imagination of biblical history how they see the world and so talking about creation and talking about how god created and everything has a purpose everything has a function and then talking about sin how how sin is something that god creates for good being twisted to uh, our purposes or to other purposes. Uh, talking about fatherhood and, and how our identity um, is drawn from uh, our father, whether it's our, our, our earthly heritage or it's our father in heaven who defines and identifies us. Talking about division and how the world will take anything that God created to be together and united and he wants the world will split it up. Satan wants to destroy and divide us against one another. And then last week we talked about exile and exodus. How, how God takes us into exile, all right, um, so that we then can be led out of the exile. We're, we're prepared to be who God wants to make us to be. We're prepared for the process of God making us who He intends us to be. And uh, today we're going to be talking about a, a, a different theme in Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, there's a, a refrain that appears four times in the second half of the book of Judges. It's actually the defining term of why Judges is in the Bible. In the, those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, this appears four times. The book of Judges is kind of a period of chaos. Um, in fact, if I were going to call Judges uh, anything, I would call it, nobody has any clue what's going on. Um, judges is all about people doing wrong things constantly, even doing the right thing the wrong way. Um, and that's really what's going on in Judges. And, and Judges, in, in the Hebrew Bible, Judges is part of what's called the former prophets. So, so the Hebrew Bible, the, the Old Testament, our Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, in, the, in, in Jewish copies, all right, that's called Tanakh. Um, Tanakh stands for Torah, 
Nevim Ketuvim. Uh, the law or the instruction, the prophets and the writings. Um, and the prophets are divided up into two parts, the former prophets and the latter prophets. Uh, the former prophets are uh, Joshua, Judges, First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And then the latter prophets are the ones we're more familiar with, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the Twelve, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Haggai, you know, those guys. Um, the, uh, you know, uh, but the, the, the scriptures are divided up and there's these former prophets and the latter prophets. There's this, uh, this, these books that today we call history books. We call Joshua, Judges, Sam, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. We call them the books of history. We, that's how Christians define them, they're the history books. But, but to the Jews, they're the, the early prophets. It's the story of God speaking to his people. Um, and, and I apologize if I nerd a little bit about this. If you don't know me, um, if you're, you're new, I am an Iron Age geek. Um, you say, those things do not exist. I assure you, I do exist. Um, I love to study the Iron Age. That's what my PhD dissertation is on, um, that, that we're working on. Uh, by the way, if you're, if you're concerned about the process of where that is, um, as soon as my last four comprehensive exams are graded and officially in the books, I officially become a PhD candidate, which means that my dissertation is being presented to mentors for them to, um, to start to work on the process of finishing that so the degree can be conferred. Um, I have to write it, but that's where we are. Um, and my, my, if you, you, you know... Anyway, um, my dissertation's title is The Pre-Exilic Unity of the Amrid Prophetic Archive. <laughs> That's right. I said it. I'm an Iron Age geek. All right. So, uh, so this, is, this is my kind of wheelhouse. This is where I love to be, um, this part of the, the scriptures. Uh, now, Joshua judges... All right, they, what they do, what they do for us is they set up two things. Joshua sets up uh, who lives where in the land of Israel, the, the southern Levant, and Judges sets up that left to themselves, the Israelites are no better than anybody else on the, world, in the, on the planet. That's really what they do. Then we get into the book of First and Second Samuel, which is about David, which really runs until First Kings chapter 3. Um, and uh, because the divisions are made on based on the letter, the length of scrolls, not on the actual story that's being told, um, and and then we get into First and Second Kings, which is really my my area of study. But this line right here: in those days, there was no king in Israel; everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is an incredibly important statement in the Hebrew Bible, because the Hebrew Bible rises and falls around a character named David. Uh, David is the keystone of the entire Hebrew Bible. Now, now some people say, well, Moses is the most important person in the Hebrew Bible. My response to that is Jesus isn't a descendant of Moses. Jesus is a descendant of David. There's a reason for that. Uh, David is the first king of Israel. He's the one of the only kings that rules over a unified Israel. Um, and he rules around the year 1000 B.C., and for years, there were arguments about whether David was a historical person uh, until we discovered uh, artifacts, pieces of a stone tablet that had been constructed by one of the kings of Aram 
um, in a place called Dan. It's in Tel Dan. Tel is the Arabic word for mound or heap, um, where it describes a king from the house of David, Bet David. All right, and so we know that David was a real king. He did rule. Uh, he was in Jerusalem. We actually have a number now of uh, what are called bule, which are imprints of seals. Uh, which have the names of kings of Israel with their term from the house of David. All right, so we know that the, he was, he did live, he did rule, he is a historical ruler, and he was the first king. And everything about the Hebrew Bible then kind of hangs off of David's kingship. So we can, we can kind of look at the, the Bible and say, okay, David is kind of the keystone. And if you know anything about engineering, the way that they make arches, right? Um, an arch has to be supported as it goes up. You have to have supports to hold it up because round things tend to fall and make flat things. Um, and so you support them until you get them up to the middle and then there's a weird kind of looking stone and they drop it in the middle. It's angled on either side and the arch actually supports itself by the weight and the pressure against the keystone. So David is the keystone of the Hebrew Scriptures. And this line here, in those days there was no king in Israel, it says, this is a world without a king. It's chaos. It's anarchy. Uh, and, and, I mean, if you read the book of Judges, it is chaos. I mean, chaos. People murdering people, people sacrificing their kids. There's all kinds of nut stuff going on in the book of Judges. Um, it is rated mature audience. So when we get to David, we get this kingship, and then we ask ourselves, what is this kingship? Now, if I asked you today to name a king that is not in the Bible, um, there's any number of them that we would name, all right? Uh, we, might, we might name, uh, I don't know, Henry VIII. I'm Henry VIII, I am Henry VIII, I am, right? Um, he's married to six women, uh, you know, divorces or murders, five of them. Um, you know, or you might mention King James I, who was James VI of Scotland and became King James I. He's the King James of the Bible. Uh, or we might talk about uh, King Edward, all right? There were plenty of those. There were like eight of those in England, so we might talk about those. Or we might talk about King Louis. There were like 487,000 King Louis in French history. It's impossible to keep straight all of them. Um, you know, or, or, or we might, we, there's any number of kings we might talk about, but those are not the kings that the Bible is talking about. That is not how kingship works in the Bible. So let's talk about how it works. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17 is called the law of the king. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Um, and here is what the scriptures have to say about a king in Israel. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of all the timing of this, but Deuteronomy, the word means second law. Deuteronomos, right? The second law. Um, this is a reiteration of the law of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers um, in the form of a series of sermons from Moses. Um, and it was probably written during the kingdom, all right? During the reign of one of David's descendants. Um, I, my preference is for the king Hezekiah. I won't get into all that. Um, but it is describing what does the law mean in our current context? What did Moses mean in our current context? How do we take what we know of Moses, all right, some of which is not in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and this is a passage that isn't, um, 
But we know this of Moses. What does this say to us? And here's the verse. When you come to the land, Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. And that's actually what happens in the book of 1, king, 1 Samuel. The people of Israel say that they want a king. All right. Um, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read, it in, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And I don't have time to go through this, but the law of the king is repeated over and over and over again through first and second kings. Um, the violation of the law and the obedience of the law. You'll read over and over again in the book of Kings, he turned neither to the left hand nor to the right, all right but followed the way of his father's. All right, describing kings. Or you will read, uh, you'll read uh, this king did, did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, for he followed after other gods. Uh, or he acquired many these, or many that. Um, there's, this law forms, uh, really, the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings are formed around this law. And the idea of this law was basically that when you choose a king, you have to choose the king that God appoints for you, all right, which occurs over and over and over in Scripture. Um, and he must, they got this whole list, but then he, he must make a copy of this law, the book of Deuteronomy, by his own hand, and he must read it every day of his life. I, I would conjecture, um, it would not be a bad idea, for leaders in nations to write out their constitution once in a while and repeat it day after day. Deuteronomy is significantly longer than the U.S. Constitution. Um, it's quite an effort to do this. You've got to want to be king. Now, it's curious that there is not a single case in the Bible until the rule of a king named Josiah of a king actually doing this, actually sitting down and writing this. Anyway, um, what is this kingship that's being described here? And this is a significant point that we need to understand from ancient context that describes what the biblical king of Israel was. When we think of a king in our world, we think of an absolute monarch. If you're a king, you can do whatever you want because you're the king. Unless you're the Queen of England, then you can't. But generally speaking, kings, when we think king, 
we think he's somebody who can do whatever he wants. All right, we think king or emperor, absolute power, absolute control. Uh, I'm also a huge science fiction nerd. All right, right now, Apple TV is making a, a, an adaptation of Isaac Asimov's foundation books. I am in heaven because it is so awesome. And the emperor, uh, the emperors that rule the kingdom in this book are called Dawn, Dusk, Dawn, Day, and Dusk. They're clones. They're called the genetic dynasty. I know I'm a nerd. Just go with it. All right. The guy who plays Day actually yells at somebody and they have a heart attack and die. He's the emperor. He has absolute power and control. That's how we tend to think about kings. That is not the biblical model of a king. That is not a biblical model of a king. In the scriptures, the king of Israel is a vassal to the king of heaven. He is a steward. He is not a tyrant. He is not a ruler. He is a caretaker of the people of God's covenant. When we read about David... And David is the king, right? When David becomes king, he's given this promise by God in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, uh, there's, there's this moment where David wants to build a temple. He wants to build a, a palace. Uh, the, the Hebrew word, by the way, for palace and temple are the same thing. All right, They're, they're, uh, they're the same word. So when we read about uh, the temple of God, and we read about the palace of the king. Same Hebrew word. So they're translated differently based on context, but the same word. And he's living in his house. Uh, David's living in his house. He wants to build a house for God. Uh, the prophet Nathan tells him to go ahead and do it, but then comes back and, and God says, no, no, don't let him do it. And, and this is what, he, what God has Nathan say to David. Uh, in Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And notice he says prince, not king. Right? And the Hebrew word prince, sar, um, is not, a, um, it's not a, the next king up. It is an appointed representative of the true king. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place. And be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. It's looking back to the book of Judges. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Who is actually the king in this situation? It's not David. 
It's God. God is appointing a subordinate king to be the caretaker for his people, but look at the language. It is constantly, you will be king before me. In other words, you will come to me. I am the sovereign. You are my servant. Your house and your kingdom shall be established, in verse 16, forever before me. God says to David, kingship is just the first servant of God's purpose. It's a divine appointment. It comes from the people, but it is subservient to God. Now, this is very different from the people that surrounded Israel because their kings were God-men. When you read about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, you need to understand that Nebuchadnezzar believed, absolutely believed, and we see this in the book of Daniel, he believed that he was God manifest on earth. Is this not great Babylon which I have built? He believed that he was the God king. The pharaohs of Egypt believed that they were the reincarnation of Osiris. Uh, they, the belief was that they, were, they are divine. And this is common throughout human society. We get outside the biblical world. You know that you were not allowed to look at the, king, the emperor of China because he was a god. You're not allowed to look at the emperor of uh, Japan until you know, we blew him up in 1945, then they changed their mind. But until that point, you were not allowed to look at the emperor of Japan because he was a god. They called him the god of heaven. His throne was the, the, the throne of heaven. Human beings want to worship a God king. But when God gives Israel their king, he makes sure that we, they understand they are not God. These are not rulers, they're caretakers, they're stewards. The power of anointing them, of recalling them, of suspending them, all resides with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. Now, in the bulletin, I, I gave you a little flyer so I did not have to give you a bunch of really long, crazy names that you were going to get really bored with. But in 722 B.C., the kingdom of the northern kingdom of Israel was taken by the Assyrians, scattered and never returned. I mentioned that before. And, and there, there, you remember when I mentioned my dissertation, the Omrids, that's, that's them, the house of Omri, the house of Ephraim. Um, the house of Samaria. The southern kingdom was ruled by the house of David from the city of Jerusalem until 586, uh, actually 603, 610, 603, and then 586, but you don't care, and 597, but I won't get into it. Um, there, were, there, were, there were a series of deportations where the ruling class of, of the, the, the house of Jerusalem, or the house of Judah, was taken into captivity in Babylon. And when they returned, they did not return as kings. Now, the, the descendant of David, a guy named Zerubbabel, he returns and he's the governor. And they seem to keep track of who is um, the descendant from David. We see that in Matthew and Luke, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, um, that they, they've kept track of who is the kid of who. But there is no ruling king. And the question then comes up, well, did God then abandon his covenant 
that there would be a ruler from the house of David over Israel for all time? And the answer is no. Because it's God who gets to decide who and when and what a king is. And he withdrew their ability to have a king, made them subservient to other nations, which, by the way, he promised he would do in the book of Deuteronomy um, if they violated his covenant. He suspended their, their secondary kingship. And remember, David is not the absolute ruler. He is a caretaker. God suspended that and appointed non-Jewish kings to be the caretakers. You say, no. Yes, he did. The book of Isaiah in chapter 44, and I know I'm jumping around. You don't have to turn everywhere. Um, but I want to I read a line from this, which when, I, when people encounter this for the first time, it kind of blows their minds. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 28, there's this line. Uh, it says, uh, this, verse 24, it says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things. And then in verse 28, speaking of the Lord, it said, Who says of Cyrus, who was the ruler, he was the Shah of what is today Iran, right? the Persians, who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purposes, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And later in the book of Isaiah, he actually refers to Cyrus as the anointed one, the Messiah. That's all Messiah means, by the way, anointed one. The chosen one. God appointed non-Israelites to be the caretakers and the shepherds of his covenant people because their kings couldn't do it. This strand runs all the way through the Old Testament. And it is what Jesus is talking about when Jesus in the Gospels starts to talk about the kingdom of heaven. See, that's what he's talking about. When Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what is he talking about? He's not necessarily saying, I'm bringing about the end of the world. That's how everybody reads that. Or, or that Jesus is saying, oh, the kingdom of heaven is the church. I'm bringing about the church. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying, you think God, your king, has abandoned you. But he has not. The kingdom of heaven is present. God is aware. Just because you don't have a physical king ruling in Jerusalem does not mean that God is not your king. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God in the Gospels is Jesus letting us know we still have a king. We are still being cared for by the great shepherd. Now, eventually, we find in the book of Revelation, the book of 1 and 2 Thessalonians, we find that Jesus will return and set up his kingdom physically among us. Now, he is already sovereign. He is already ruling. So when people say, well, when does, when does 
God's kingdom, when does the kingdom of God start in the end times? And I would conjecture to you that God's kingdom never stopped. God never went, you know what, never mind. Let's let these guys have their own thing for a while. I'll come back, you know. That is not what is happening. God is sovereign over all. He is the king not only of Israel, but the king of the nations. He appoints Cyrus. He appoints Nebuchadnezzar. He appoints Herod. He appoints the Roman emperors. Paul, the apostle Paul says that, that the rulers, the, the kings that they had to deal with in their time frame, that they were appointed by God for a reason. It's good to know that God is king of the nations because most of us are not members of Israel. And yet he is still our sovereign king. When we read the scriptures, how dare we, how dare we to assume that we can read them better, that we can read the events of history better than the king who is orchestrating and guiding them. We make value judgments in the Bible based on our own sovereignty instead of the sovereignty of the king of heaven. We, we look at things and we, we go, well, this is how I would make it fit together and therefore that's a nice reasonable package and that's how it should work. And yet our God is king. Whether there is a physical king on the throne in Jerusalem or not, he is king. We must always read the scriptures understanding that our active, real God rules over the events of man. When we start reading the Bible as if God is the God of the deist who has kind of backed away and just wants to see how things play out, we have lost sight of the God of the scriptures. When we try to figure out, I grew up in the prophetic phases of the 1980s where everybody was deciding what was a sign of the coming of Christ. 88 reasons Jesus was coming in 1988. When that didn't work out, 89 reasons Jesus was coming in 1989. People predicting that Jesus was going to come in 1994. People predicting Jesus was coming in Y2K. The computers were going to fail and Jesus was going to show up. People predicting after September 11th, the sins of the, of the nation. People, televangelists telling everybody the sins of the nations were so great that Jesus had to come soon, that this was a sign. Then we had Hurricane Katrina. Look at how God is manifesting all of these things. It's obvious. Jesus is going to show up any day. How dare we try to set a schedule for the King of Kings? Even in Bible college, I used to say that if you want to guarantee to know the day that Jesus is not coming, just find somebody who predicted he would come on that day. So what are we in relation to the King of Kings? We are his people. He owns us. He cares for us. He chastens us. He teaches us. He leads us. He reveals himself to us. He empowers us. He alters us. Sometimes he lets the powers of this world break us down. Sometimes he lets the powers of this world have their way. 
And the people of, uh, of God suffer and die and are tortured and persecuted. And we sit there and we go, well, has God abandoned us? Our place is not to question the king. Our place is to stay true to his covenant with us. Our place is to wait for the coming of Jesus, the final descendant of David, the branch of Jesse, the seal of all hope. The Apostle Paul, when he speaks with Jesus, you can almost feel with the Apostle Paul when he speaks of Jesus and his return, his longing and desire to be in the presence of the true King. And in the meantime, our calling is to honor the King's wishes in the face of whatever comes against Him. Our place as the kingdom, as the, the fragments of the kingdom, I like to call them, is to honor the king in the face of all. No matter what the powers of this world, who God is sovereign over, throw at us, we honor the king. And guess what happens in the Bible if you watch the narrative? When the kingdom starts to fail when kings have to be deposed, when kingdoms collapse, why is it always, what is the reason always given in the scriptures? It is because they abandoned their king. They abandoned the God of heaven. We live in a time more like the Roman Empire than any time in the history, modern history of America, of the world. This is not a political commentary. This is just a reality. As a historian, I can look back and I can say, this post-Christian world that we live in is more like the Roman Empire than any age since about 250 A.D. And we sit around and go, we bemoan how bad the world is. Maybe we should make our focus on how good the king still is. Our focus is so often on the petty powers of this world who only have power because the king allows them to have power. And that's for a purpose and a season. And maybe it's because the church needs to be refined. Maybe it's because the church has become lazy. And I mean that with a capital C, not Bedford Road, don't. And he's like, Eric said there, we're all lazy. Maybe there is something to be said for the king's agenda right now. And maybe we need to be about that agenda regardless what else is happening. And you join me in a word of prayer. Jesus, you chose to build a kingdom of ignorant fishermen from Galilee. Tax collectors with a burden of guilt. Prostitutes and demon-possessed women. You chose not to invade the palaces of Rome or Jerusalem 
to live on a lakeside amongst the dregs. You called us to a, a kingdom that is wholly and committed, wholly and fully committed to your Father, no matter what the world around us looks like. And we wait, Jesus, every day for your kingdom to become manifest. But help us to manifest it. To be the fragments of the true king's servants in the midst of a world that has deluded themselves into believing that they are the kings and they are in charge and they are powerful. You reveal your power in the most paradoxical ways through crucifixion, through suffering, through brokenness, through blessing. And Lord, we are called to live as yours and yours alone. May we, your church, stay true to your purposes no matter what happens in the world around us. We pray all of this, Jesus, in your name, by the power of the Holy Spirit who gives us life. Amen.